the dark days are done and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere. Sunny one so true. Thank you, Doc. Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is John Barber, live in Las Vegas. That, of course, was Sarita singing Sunny and Frank Sinatra saying, here's Johnny, the night he hosted the Tonight Show and asked me to come on and do a stand-up piece, which you can see if you Google it on YouTube. And again, thank you for to David Lespie for, uh, David Lispie for designing that fabulous visual, visual opening. And I'm talking to uh, my director and my technical director and co-founder of BBS Radio, who's active in California. Don, are you there, and how are you today, and how was your weekend? I'm doing excellent. My weekend was perfect. Thank you, John. Yes, it's rare that I have such a good weekend, but it was excellent. Thank you. Well, I hope you got to spend a lot of time with your four teenage children. I know you have three boys, 13 to 20, and a young girl. I know it's very difficult for you to have free time with them because you and your brother Doug are spending all of your time building up this inheritance that you're going to leave to them. But I was in show business for years and years, so I had a lot of time to spend with my son. In spite of my success as a creator and producer of Hosts of Real People and all of the things I did in show business and even the garrison tapes, I must tell you the happiest days of my life were when I spent all of my time with my son, and I want you to treasure the moments you have with your teenagers, because in a moment, I am going to tell you bluntly how quickly time does fly. You know, it is, uh, it is a wonderful week for bread and circuses in America, and I don't <laughs> consider the Kavanaugh hearings part of the bread and circuses, even though some people might. It has to do with sports. I mean, when the Roman Empire was collapsing, the bread and circuses they provided was lions eating Christians. And as you know, Mark Twain said there were too few lions and too many Christians. <laughs> well, I had I had a great way. It is a great time for bread and circuses in America. Over the weekend, I watched the fabulous Ryder Cup from, from Paris. Uh, today, the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers beat the Rockies to move ahead. Milwaukee beat Chicago to move ahead. Football has started. Hockey starts this week. But I'm going to tell you something about golf. My son, as a youngster from the ages of 9 to 16, was a Caucasian Tiger Woods. He was on television frequently. My joy was taking him to junior golf tournaments around Southern California. He won half of the tournaments he entered. The other half that he didn't win were won by a Japanese boy. His name was Kenny Tanagawa. And Kenny was born in Japan. He was tall and handsome and articulate and very pleasant. After 16 years of age, he went to UCLA. My son was recruited by Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and Stanford, but went to Stanford because that's where Tom Watson went. And that's it. But the reason I encouraged my son to be a golfer, Don, it's the only profession I know of where a man or a woman is totally in charge of their success or their failure, unlike any profession in the world, especially politicians. A lot of people are not aware that golfers are the only professional athletes not paid to play the game. Wow. They are only, they I never are knew that. I never put that together. That's right. And they have to pay an entrance fee to get into these tournaments. Well, anyway, after watching 
the uh, Ryder Cup in Paris and being made more aware that Americans are lousy team players and their long knockers need wider fairways to play on. But after that, I tuned in to the senior tournament in Pebble Beach. And guess what I saw? Standing on the 18th green, a par five that he had reached into was 50-year-old Kenny Tanagawa. Two other golfers had already finished, and they were one shot ahead of him. He was 40 feet away with a putter in his hand. He needed to two-putt to get into a three-way playoff. So my wife and I stood there breathlessly watching Kenny. After all of these years, he whacked the putt up the hill 40 feet, and it dove into the hole for an eagle. He won the tournament oh my. by one shot. Now, of course, my wife, she started whooping and whimpering because when he was a youngster, she was the one that kept his score. And I was so happy for him and so happy for her. And I looked at my calendar to count the days that I have left. And then I saw a day that I was thrilled with because it was finally the day that I was going to have the guest that I've wanted to talk to for over two years. That's how long I've waited to talk to this amazing American. He's an ex-Marine. He's an ex-criminal investigator and a forensic instructor to the FBI. He owns the Guerrilla Media Network and is one of the most successful hosts on the Internet. But more than that, He gained his fame in America and around the world for something that very, very few people have ever done in their lives. And that is he had the courage to walk the talk of seeking the truth. In this case, it was in the Clive Bundy case. As a result of this, he ended up serving almost two years in a prison in Oregon and here in Nevada. I have always admired the actions of the only journalist who had the truth to do that. And I am delighted and honored that after all this time, he is finally on my show, the one and only Pete Santilli. Pete, thank you so much for being here. I'm so honored and I'm not uh, not worthy of all those accolades. I will say that. You're, sir, you're a legendary broadcaster yourself. Now, we'll talk about what led me to broadcasting, but, sir, uh, I'm so honored uh, to hear you speak those those words of me. I'm very humbled by that, and I thank you very much for having me on your show. Well, Pete, uh, the one thing that I always ask people I admire is how they got to the, be the people I admire. So I would like to know very briefly a little bit about where you were born, your background, your parents, your siblings, your early influences— what you what you dreamt of being? Did you dream of playing for the New York Yankees? And what was your first job when you got out of school? So start from there. You know, I'll 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 do that. Uh, as a matter of fact, believe it or not, right now I'm doing. Uh, we'll we'll begin this way. Right now I'm doing what I've always uh, dreamed of doing, but never. Uh, until uh, the past five or six years have I had the opportunity uh, to actually do it. And I'll, I'll tell you a story. I grew up in upstate New York, and uh, I was always a little techie geek. You know, as, uh, I'll tell you this story. I used to, when I was eight, nine years old, my parents would make me go to sleep at a, cert, uh, make me go to sleep at a certain time, and, and I had my little transistor radio that I would put in my, in my pillow. So I'd be pretending that I'm sleeping, but I had my ear up against a transistor radio. And back in that day, uh, I used to listen to the likes of people like uh, Art Bell. And I I listened to uh, the realm of the unknown and uh, uh, the possibilities of, uh, you know, the the galaxy that we live in. And he just taught me to just open my mind. So this is at a very young age. I used to listen uh, to talk radio. Um, I worked a lot when I was a kid. Uh, I actually studied... uh, uh, architectural engineering. I was doing drafting. I was going to go to college. And I said, you know, I don't want to sit at a drawing board for the rest of my life. I was actually, uh, uh, I became a Reagan Republican. 
uh, especially during the Lake Placid Olympics, became a patriot at that time. And I said, you know what? I want to serve my country. Uh, I want to join the Marine Corps. And I told my parents that. And they're like, what? You're not going to go to college. I actually joined the Marine Corps right out of high school. Uh, I, I skipped college. I actually picked up, believe it or not, a lot of college uh, since then uh, in my travels. But I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to join the Marine Corps and certainly did that. When I was 17, I signed up and went in when I was 18. I was in the, the aviation side of, um, uh, of the Marine Corps. As a matter of fact, when my recruiter sat me down, he said, boy, you know, your scores are pretty, pretty, wow, they're really high. You can do whatever you want. And I said, hold on a second. I want to do something that I could never do in the civilian world. And he looks at it and he goes, how about this? How about aviation ordinance? I became actually an aviation weapons um, a specialist. Uh, and it was the most amazing experience of my life. Half of the time in the Marine Corps, I was spent, it was spent working with fixed wing uh, aircraft. I handled all, uh, all aviation weapons, nuke, biochemical, all the way down to conventional weapons. Half of the time was spent as a air crewman on helicopters. And I traveled the world, traveled all throughout the Far East. And by the way, I'm a Cold War veteran. Um, so at the time when I went in, I, I, uh, I, I was I didn't see any combat action. I flew up and down the DMZ. That's uh, one thing I did. I traveled the Philippines, traveled all throughout the Far East. But I had one of the most amazing, amazing experiences of my life. And uh, uh, at uh, about the four year mark, I actually got injured and got out. I'm actually a disabled American vet as a um, wow. uh, disabled. Yeah, I actually got out on a medical. I broke my ankle in a in a freak accident. Um, a quick, a and, quick question, Pete, yes, about your service in the military, because it's quite moving when you say that you were a patriot and you wanted to serve oh, your country. So absolutely. instead of going to school, you become a Marine. Did you have, when you got into the Marines, misgivings or second thoughts about what the American military was doing? And the reason I ask that is because it sounds almost exactly like the Pat Tillman story because after 9-1-1, Pat Tillman gave up this lucrative football career to join the service. And when he got to Afghanistan, he had second thoughts about it and even was in touch with uh, uh, Noam Chomsky mm. about coming back and talking about the faulty foreign policy that we have. So I'm just curious about... Were there any changes in your philosophy at all after you joined the military? No, not at all. By the way, I, how much uh, time do we have together tonight? I just want to make sure that I gauge uh, gauge our time. But how, how much time do we have together tonight? Uh, we have as much time as you want. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. I I just wanted to make sure that I didn't step on your schedule. But uh, oh so no 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 no. Hey, listen, I've waited so long to have you here, but I was just curious about that yeah. because uh, go ahead. No, I, I will without any uh, hesitation, no reservation. I went in in 1983, and I came out. Now, by the way, I was exposed to some stuff that I'm going to share with you. It was pretty amazing. Uh, I had a top-secret security clearance, uh, but my uh, experience in the military, I was a patriot. I actually had access to some of our nation's uh, greatest secrets, our nation's uh, most sophisticated weaponry. Uh, I was involved with the attack on Qaddafi uh, uh, in, in, in Libya. My weapons, actually, some of those sophisticated weapons were used uh, in the attack on Libya. I don't know if you remember that way back when, when Reagan yes, yes. launched that Reagan. attack. Yeah, yes. I was involved in that. But, sir, I'm going to tell you, as a patriot then, uh, knowing what I had access to, uh, we launched uh, on three separate occasions. So we almost la we launched a deployment to North Korea on three separate occasions, I had been deployed. We're we were going to launch um, preemptive strikes on North Korea on three separate occasions that I was involved in. This is not known in the public, but I was involved in it, being deployed from Okinawa. They said, gentlemen, this is it. We found tunnels dug underneath the DMZ. Uh, I was, as a patriot, going up against the evil Russian Empire, uh, the North Koreans. I was dedicated uh, uh, to that effort and spirit as a patriot, was never disillusioned. Now, let me tell you what I had exposure to. This is very interesting. Not a lot of people know this. Uh, do you remember Rex 84? Do you, are you familiar with Rex 84? Readiness Exercise 84? No, never heard of it. Okay. Well, it, you're being sarcastic, correct? 
No, no, not at all. I, to me, Rex means king, but I know almost nothing about the military. Readiness exercise 84, something that Ollie North was involved in. It was a it was a big uh, thing that came about that found, it was the founding of FEMA, uh, the Federal Emergency Management Act, the FEMA right. um, uh, Department, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Uh, well, this is, here's the long story short. Because of my injury, I was responsible for writing procedures for how to get weapons off of our military air bases during civil unrest. This is in the late 80s. And I said, holy cow, I remember going to my, my chief warrant officer and I said, Gunner, I said, if we have to implement this stuff, we're in a mess, aren't we? And he said, well, shut up, Santilli. You're, you, know, you don't get paid to think. Just go back and do, do your work. But I was actually, I had exposure to the reasons why we had to have these emergency procedures put in place. It stuck with me because the financial system would have broken down. This is before the internet. Uh, and, uh, and I said, wow, this, the, we would be in trouble if we had to implement what we're talking about implementing here, including killing Americans. Uh, should they come you know, during civil unrest and interfere with the, uh, uh, with the transportation of certain weapons off of our military bases? And I said, wow, this is, this is a continuity of government plan that is pretty amazing. I hope we never have to use it. Well, sir, um, since then, continuity of government is everything that we've been suffering from. Uh, our government, our system, the so-called deep state, exists to continue at all costs. And certainly the political realm we can get into in a little bit. But I had access to uh, Well, there had, Pete, there had to come a time, you said, no, that you were a patriot. When you say the word patriot, mm -hmm. when I think of patriots, I think of those people who are constitutionalists, whereas a lot of the people, look at uh, Smedley Butler, for example, mm -hmm. uh, a, a Marine general who said he was a gangster for capitalism. So he, he had a change of heart with his experience in yeah. the military and dealing with, uh, and dealing with Wall Street. And uh, one of the mistakes that FDR made was that he didn't prosecute anybody in the yeah. attempt to try to overthrow him and one of the overthrowers was Prescott Bush. But that's another thing. But what it, it almost sounds a little like Jim Garrison believed the Warren report because he'd been an FBI agent, he'd been in the military until he met Congressman Hale Boggs, who was a descending member of the Warren Commission, and said that kid could have never fired that rifle. So he got three sets of the Warren Commission and read it. He had an about face, and it seems that you had an about face because how could somebody mm. like I, when I asked Mr. Garrison, how on earth as an independent uh, politician, as an ex FBI agent and in the Air Force Reserve, how could you possibly go ahead against the federal government? And he said, John, as I guess, as a kid, I saw one too many Frank Capra movies. Yeah. It seems to me what you did in getting yourself involved mm -hmm. With the Clive Bundy case. Now, you know, one of my very close friends is George Knapp here in town, who's covered that a lot. They had a trial here about eight months ago that was never reported in Las Vegas where the trial was, where evidently a lot of the charges were dismissed or reversed. But it seems to me that somehow you are going up against the very government in the very country that you had joined the Marines for, for by getting involved with the Clyde Bundy case. So tell me how that transition came about, okay. why you did it, and mm -hmm. why you suffered through it so much. Well, I, I will say unequivocally, I've never, ever, ever, as a matter of fact, I swore an oath as a Marine to defend and support the Constitution of the United States. As a constitutionalist, as a patriot, as a Marine, uh, the Marines surround the, and protect the president. It's this level of patriotism that I speak of that is uncompromising. Smedley Butler couldn't have been compromised. That's why they have the Marine Corps uh, surrounding and protecting the president of the United States. So I'm going to say this. At no point in time ever that I go against my government, I had an obligation to defend our Constitution and our government from the people that it had infiltrated. It called the Marxist Obama administration regime that used the power of the Bureau of Land Management, the full force of the government, to point guns at an American family. 
uh, over a cattle dispute that had been ongoing for 20 years. At no point in time as a Marine will I ever accept that people would abuse their power uh, for political purposes to point guns at unarmed uh, people like the ranch. Exactly. Uh, Pete, exactly what was yes. that cattle controversy over? Uh, I, and I've read miles and miles of articles about it, and it's still not clear to me. Were they somehow grazing on land that was not theirs? You know, uh, let me tell you something. They uh, just remember this back in the day. Now, we're talking about a family that, that was uh, basically offered and given incentives, as a lot of people were, to come out west, uh, to settle the west, um, uh, to actually build, you know, farms, to come out there and you have land that you can graze on. This is back to the 1850s. Clive and Bundy's family uh, had actually gone out there. It's rough terrain. Uh, so they were actually lured out there and given incentives to go out and settle, to graze, uh, to, to, build, to make a living for themselves. And obviously that's how the West was built, uh, was through that type of settlement incentive. So back to the 1850s, something happened along the way. And I know exactly what the line of demarcation was. Uh, sir, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually summarize the fact that we have $150 trillion in natural resources wealth in the land in the United States. And somebody figured out that if they can really get these ranchers off the land, especially out in the West, that they can extract the wealth. A portion of that $150 trillion is out West, that if we can run these ranchers off the land, we can have the Bureau of Land Management cut deals to sell lithium and gold and uranium and water. So. Well, Pete, Pete, that, 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 that's true. There's no question about that being true because there were, there were rumors and there were verified reports that they were trying to take some of this land and sell it to the Chinese and to the Russians. But does this sound to you, you say that, uh, that you say that the government was infiltrated by Marxists. Oh, but yeah. does this, does this not sound more to you like greedy capitalism rather than socialist Marxists? Well, I, I would say this, and I've studied this, uh, by the way, but to answer it, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Obama administration, but, and, and by the way, I'm going to tell you something. I voted for Barack Obama, a lifelong Republican that wanted change. I was upset about the war. I actually found out about 9-11. I started awakening. And it wasn't until, by the way, you asked me a question earlier, when did I change my heart? when I started discovering the truth about what was happening after 9-11. That's when I started researching and I started saying, oh my goodness, we're in trouble here. So sir, uh, to tell you uh, that I was realizing what the Obama administration was doing by funding uh, through gun sales, of course, in a capitalist fashion for the purposes of supporting the global Islamic terrorism. I have researched this. I was able to establish uh, that these people wanted to extract the wealth and to give it to their, uh, let's say that their side of the cronies, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, George Soros, the left side of the internet for advancing the Marxist agenda, that is not a conspiracy theory. I watched it happen, I researched it, I investigated it, and they were using and weaponizing capitalism in order to feed uh, their, their agenda. So that's a mouthful. Well, I, hate, no. I hate to admit also, I seldom vote, and one of the reasons I, I didn't, I remember a great line from Jack Parr, who was by far the best host of The Tonight Show. He says, I never vote because it just encourages them. But I did, like you. I voted for Barack Obama for the one simple reason that I thought he was going to be a peace candidate. Yes. Now, peace candidates are truly very difficult to find in America these days, but within 30 days, I realized I had made a mistake. And if you go to YouTube, you can see a very funny video of me singing the Obama blues <laughs> because that's how I expressed my disdain for it because I did it as an entertainer, but you do it as a Marine. And you wanna know something, how I can tell to the core to this day at your age, the reason I can tell you are a Marine is you keep referring to me as sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> I wish you would just call me John. I am not that old and I'm not your command commanding officer. But now you're involved with this thing out there and you see the American government 
with guns surrounding these farmers. Mm-hmm. What were your thoughts? And were you not afraid at time for your own life? Oh, I, absolutely. When I, oh, well, first of all, uh, this is how I came to know Clive and Bundy. Now I'm from, I'm from upstate New York. I'm in Southern California. I knew nothing about ranching. My producer came to me and said, holy cow, you need to follow this story. This is on April 7th of 2014. I told her, I told Ashley, I said, Ashley, I don't do ranching and cows and I know nothing about animals. I don't do ranching. What, you know, why are you bringing me this story? She said, this is bigger than that. She said, there, there, look at this picture of a helicopter. They got a gunship flying around. They got, you know, fully outfitted, heavily armed uh, agents. And they're going to, uh, to, to Waco or Ruby Ridge style attack this family, this ranching family, and things are heating up out there. I said, you know what? I need to, I need to talk to this guy. I brought him on my show on, on April 8th of 2014. I had a one-hour conversation with him on an interview like this, and he told me what was happening. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. Essentially, he said, they're corralling us in First Amendment pens. We can't express ourselves. We can't protest. They've got hundreds of agents pointing guns at us. They've got snipers up in the hills. And I said, let's get out there and let's support uh, this family. And I actually ended up at the end of that show. And I said, I need to get out there and see this for myself. It was the first time I had gone out into the field. I said, I'm going to drive from Southern California and I'm going to go to Bundy Ranch to see for myself. Sir, when I arrived there first thing in the morning, God's country, by the way, I arrived at Bundy Ranch. The sun came up. I met the family. I saw the pictures of the snipers up in the hills uh, with their scopes pointed at a beautiful American Mormon Christian family. I said, this is outrageous. The best thing we can do is to bring eyeballs and ears to this story and get we, the people out here, to stop the government from doing what they're about to do. Because I believe that if things are not done right, they're going to shoot and kill you. And we need as many people out here as possible. Um, On the 9th, after I said that, at 12 o'clock noon, all of a sudden, the BLM rangers come out of the hills. There's a convoy of about 20, 30 vehicles. They all had they had AR-15s. They had Nazi dogs. I say Nazi. This is like Nazi Germany. I remember when they jumped out of the vehicle. I had my iPad. And uh, they jump out. They start started tasing people. They had AR-15s. I recorded it. And I said, I can't believe what I'm w- witnessing here. They threw Aunt Margaret, a family member, down to the ground. One of the BLM agents did. It was, I was witnessing police brutality and government overreach, excessive force with the AR-15s against these unarmed protesters. I recorded it, and it went viral. It was actually the fastest video to ever hit a million views because people were so outraged by it. And Fox well, News picked it up, too. That, that, that is absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um when were you actually arrested? And was it for obstruction of justice that they got you, that they nailed you? You know, this is, this is April 9th when this whole thing started. April 8th was the right. first interview with Clive and Bundy. Um, uh, we had been successful. I say we, the people, we the people, up against this, this thing that was coming at us and having a protest and asking Sheriff Gillespie to to protect life, liberty, and property, told the BLM to leave. It was a successful event. Nobody was harmed, okay? Fast forward two years, this investigation with thousands of FBI agents and, and go, you know, government uh, investigators, nobody had ever approached me. Nobody ever asked me a question. Santilli, what did you mean when you said we were going to stand and fight and defend, you know, our life, liberty, and property? Nobody ever asked me that. Two years later, because I was so successful in bringing a lot of eyes and ears as an independent uh, uh, journalist to the Bundy Ranch story, I continued to cover the story. They said, hey, we got a protest for another rancher out in Oregon. Why don't you come out there and cover the story? These wow. ranchers. And I, and I learned the story. This is in 2016. Uh, in 2016, to answer your question, that's when, okay, they said, wow, okay, you're really connected to these Bundys. You're out covering this story. They're all of a sudden taking over the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, and they basically arrested me on January 26, 2016, for conspiracy to 
take over the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. They actually made <laughs> it up. It was bogus, and they actually ended up dismissing me out of that case up there. When this happened to you, what did your family and friends say? Did they tell you you were being foolish for doing this? That you yeah, couldn't they, win? They, uh, you know, we, we, we have uh, people, well, those that, that were not as well-informed as me, okay, uh, saw that I was very passionate about pursuing the truth and about standing up against government overreach. We have a constitutional right to redress grievance. If we believe that our government is out of control, it shouldn't be pointing guns at unarmed uh, citizens that are trying to do their darndest to, to protect their life, liberty, and property. Uh, when that happens, we have a right to speak out vocally. I had never harmed in this entire thing. I've never called for anything illegal, no violence, no nothing. I was very, very careful all the way through. But I was very vocal about saying, stop doing the wrong things towards the American people. We're not going to tolerate that. We will stand up and we will argue with you to tell you to stop and to do the right thing. If you're running our government, right. you're running it wrong. We're going to tell you to stop. So when you were when you were in prison, were you considered sort of a folk hero or did some people vilify you for what you did standing up against the government? No, I, I'm going to tell you. Um, and it wasn't standing up against the government because, you know, as a matter of fact, a lot of the media says that um, uh, that we were anti-government. No, we're pro. I say we we should all be you, me, everyone of every political persuasion. We should be pro government of, by, and for our people. So we were for that. And, and very constitutional, very supportive of the American family. I call us leave me the heck aloneness, which we all are. Leave us alone and don't, don't take our stuff. But in the prison uh, system, uh, in those walls, um, we actually were very, very, we were actually admired, put on a pedestal, uh, and considered civil rights act activists internally. Uh, uh, almost at a level of protection by every race, creed, and color because they recognized who we were and what we were standing up for. And we continued, by the way, uh, to stand up for even their rights within within the system as, you know, I considered us godly men that were very, very uh, considerate and compassionate towards everybody's situation that they were in. So we were... A little, a, a little earlier, you mentioned the dreadful continuance of government. Yes. And you also mentioned the setting up of the FEMA camps. Yes. And you also said something that was not reported very widely, but I don't know if it's true or not, because you don't know always what it's true that's on the Internet or especially in the mainstream media, that the uh, military was interviewing soldiers and asking them, in the case of civil unrest, would they shoot American citizens? Mm -hmm. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I know this from, uh, by the way, this is not rumor and speculation. I have, you know, friends that are in the Marine Corps, uh, friends that are in other branches of the service. Uh, there was a point in time, again, during especially the Obama administration, where there was a purge. They had to establish whether or not, you know, they had loyalty to the, we'll say the Democrats or loyalty to the Republicans. We'll call it that. I call it Marxism, but, you know, some people don't, don't uh, uh, accept that thing uh, that we now know is upon us. But are you going to be loyal to the Democratic side or are you going to be loyal to the Republican side? All the way as high as the military generals uh, were tested, uh, they were questioned, and their loyalty was sorted out. And there was a massive purge uh, during the Obama administration that took place. Uh, but their direction had to come from top leadership that generals and colonels, especially through Benghazi, by the way. I don't know if you remember Benghazi, uh, yes. that purge that took place there. They had uh, generals and officer-grade uh, uh, military officials that disobeyed orders to go in and help uh, save uh, the special operators that were under attack uh, by, the, by the Islamists, by the terrorists in Benghazi. There was a big purge then. The answer is that is absolutely factually correct. Uh, they, they want a team of people whoever this cabal is, we'll call them deep staters, okay, as to whether or not they will be able to go against the American people. Um, I believe we have the majority of our military that will not, that they will defend us. Well, I'm telling you, I'm absolutely stunned because 
you mentioned Democrats and Republicans, and there's no question you're you're a deep constitutionalist and a supporter of the Bill of Rights. There is nothing in the Constitution about Democrats and Republicans. That's right. So how did we end up having a very ineffectual two-party system in which my feeling is, and my observation, is that the only difference between Democrats and Republicans is the spelling. What I would like to do, if you don't mind, Pete, the fellow that I have on the last half of my show is a fellow named uh, Joe Satilli. He is an absolutely brilliant outspoken, well-informed journalist. And he was telling me today, he called me today to say how much he admired the fact that another journalist like you risked your life to go and do what you did. Ordinarily, originally, I thought you and I would talk for half an hour, but I'm not going to let you go. I mean, no, no, that's, that's perfectly would fine. You I... mind, would you mind if we take a, a quick break now? Don will play the intermission, and after the break, I want you to meet Joe Satilli. He has a magnificent daily newsletter that is indeed totally objective, both sides of everything. He selects from the greatest articles in the world. It's a fabulous journal. It's called News Vandal. It's much better than the Drudge Report, I'm happy to say. So I'd appreciate it if you'd stick around and let him join us. I'd be honored. Yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Don, if you play the intermission, get a hold of Joe, and we'll be right back with the incomparable Pete Santilli. I want to thank you all for tuning in to listen to to look at our little undertaking here on BBS Radio, John Barber's World. And if you want to hear it again or look at it again, go to BBS Radio Archives, John Barber's World, or you can go to my site, YouTube forward slash johnbarbersworld.com. Not only are these shows archived, but you will find highlights and excerpts from my 40 years in television and show business. Fabulous stories, some dramatic, some funny, some truly interesting, and a few outrageous mad-as-hell rants, which I certainly enjoyed doing. You will also see the second-best documentary ever made about anybody in show business, it's called Ernie Kovacs Television's Original Genius. By far the best film ever made about somebody in show business was Searching for Sugar Man, which won an Oscar a few years ago. But most importantly to me, you will find the links to what I believe is the most important movie ever made in America. It's a runaway hit on Amazon, thanks to you, and on Vimeo. It's called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy but also free on this site, the original Garrison Tapes, the last word in the assassination, the last word on the Garrison Tapes, and if you are truly, truly interested in the subject, go to Len Osanic's Black Op Radio, 50 Reasons for 50 Seasons. It's a fabulous undertaking, and you should not miss it. This film would not exist on this site if it were not first for George Knapp, who saved it from obscurity, it was a runaway hit around the world, but blocked here. He saw it one day, put me on coast to coast, and saved it. But it's saved for history and saved for you by David Lisby. David Lisby was a young man who was a fan of the film, showed up at my house one day, said, I'm going to build you a site so the world and history can have this film and excerpts from your work. That was nine years ago. For nine years, he's been maintaining this site, and now he does it from Thailand, where he's an American expatriate. So I cannot thank David enough, and you should be thanking him also. Also, I want to thank Mike Kim, the producer of this show. I've never met him, but he finds me the most fabulous and the most interesting guest anybody could ever have. And of course, I could not be doing the show if it weren't for the founders of BBS, Doug and Don Newsom. But again, the one I really want to thank, and I love all of the people I'm thanking, is my son Christopher. Christopher Ernest Barber is his name, and you can see it twice on the credits of Criminal Minds. He's one of the co-executive producers and one of the writers, and he is by far the greatest thing that I ever helped to produce. 
And now back to my show. Thank you. Welcome back. I hope there wasn't any difficulty during the intermission because I couldn't resist talking to uh, Pete because he's so interesting. And now it's going to get more interesting because we have Pete here. But uh, evidently, uh, they were playing the Neil Simon tribute we did, and we were still talking. So I hope that wasn't a problem. Anyway, Pete, we are back. I want you to say hello to Pete. And Pete, I want you to uh, say hello uh, to Joe and Joe, go ahead and yeah, it's a thin line between Santilli and Satilli. Oh yeah, I like those. Uh, yeah, isn't that interesting? Hey, I like those Italian-sounding uh, last names. Love yeah. those. Yeah. A lot of go. vowels. A lot of vowels. There you go. But you know, how much did you know about what was happening in the Bundy case? Because as much as I read and wanted to know, since I had to be on the air. I could not get, get clarification. It was never clear to me, even when I talked to George Knapp about it. What were your thoughts and impressions about that? Well, I actually sure. I thought it turned out to be a much more complicated story than it was initially portrayed. Uh, you know, there is the Shades Brush Rebellion that's going on in the West. And as somebody who's who is born and raised in the West, although I have my family roots in Hackensack, New Jersey, Paisans, uh, I know a lot about the Sage Brush Rebellion. And also, as somebody who grew up in California, it really begins with the tax revolt in California in the 70s with the Howard Jarvis and Paul Gann uh, Prop 13. Oh, I remember that. Right. Well. That, that's really where this thing has has its roots. And as such, there is, uh, you know, there are a lot of problems about leasing public lands and the way America leases its public lands. If you are an oil company, you can basically lease public lands for like a buck a year. And that's been going on for a long time. You can extract oil pay very, minim very minimal taxes on it and get a lot of oil out. A lot of that, Pete is right, that there is, a, there is a push and pull between how much of this public land is going to go towards grazing, uh, use by individuals, and actually a lot of big agribusinesses that are taking over family farms, and also extractive industries. And actually, one of the things that we find under the Trump administration is that Ryan Zinke is intimately intertwined with the extractive industries, and a lot of these lands are now being auctioned off. What's interesting is that over the last two uh, auction cycles uh, under the Trump administration, they've actually had a hard time auctioning some of these things off because there's such a glut of oil and gas on the market right now. But to get back to the Bundy case, I think the you know the, what the Bundys did in going into the refuge was was problematic, but the way that the government responded to it had the echoes of Ruby Ridge. Yes. And Ruby Ridge is one of those flashpoints that unites usually, uh, certainly unites conservatives and libertarians, but then starts to bring in civil libertarians because then you have civil liberty issues. And I think that this was actually where the government got into its typical overreach. And this is not an overreach that's, that's exclusive to the Obama administration. This is a systematic yes, overreach that has gone on for the last 50 years. Would you like to expand on that, Pete? Because I see you nodding in agreement. Yeah, no. He's he's um he's he's spot on uh, with regards to the flashpoints because you know when when you have protesters uh, back in January of 2016, I was actually opposed to because I'm not a lawbreaker. I've never broken the law my whole life, and all of a sudden these guys are taking over a bird farm. I said, "What are you guys doing?" And they were protesting. And I said, you know what? The bottom line is I'm not going to turn my back on you. I think what you did was wrong. But this is a major international news story. I don't believe you deserve to be killed. You're, let's give you a parking ticket or a trespassing ticket. And let's get you out of here so that, you know, b before they kill you guys. I don't believe you deserve to die because you came into a bird farm as protesters. Now, protesters on the left side of the spectrum, when they go out to the Keystone Pipeline, there were people that were shooting at police officers. They got, you know, uh, three months, um, uh, 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 three months in in jail and and uh, you know, and a, and a small fine. Um, they're treated much differently. But in this instance, in January 2016, 500 plus HRT. Uh, those are the the high end FBI agents. These are the special operators within the FBI. Uh, and there was a plan to go in there and slaughter. This is on the record, by the way, in a recent trial. They had planned to go in there and slaughter every single one of those Americans because they called them militants and they had guns. They wanted to kill them, and they, in fact, ended up killing Lavoie Finnegan. 
that was an excessive, overbearing response to a protest. How come Waco was never considered excessive? I know. I did, John, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who says that Waco is not excessive. You might find a few holdouts, apologists for the Clinton administration, you know, the, that era of the 90s. There are few of those left. I think now Waco is looked at as a, um, a, ma a major mistake on the part of both law enforcement and the, the Clinton administration. And, you know, it's one of those things, you know, you talk about, uh, I think of uh, American Indian movement taking over um, um, uh, Alcatraz. There's something to be said for when, when these kind of protests happen, you just basically freeze them out. You just wait. All you have to do is wait. Oh, Eventually, yeah. They'll, you, you'll, they're going to need water. They're going to need. They're going to need resources. Eventually, mm -hmm. let them have their protests. And I think this is one of the things that we have had an issue with in this country, going all the way back to the Cold War. Because during the Cold War, there was such a reaction during the Cold War to uh, anti-government protest that there was this um, this sense that government that anti-government protest was anti-patriotic, mm -hmm. and a lot of people who want to protest end up getting their ability to protest denied to them. And if you deny people political oxygen, they will take up arms and become belligerent. It's just sort of a truism in democracy. Democracy works when you let people have the oxygen to say what they want to say. Had these, I think, you know, Leroy Finnegan being essentially executed the way he was on camera is, is, is exactly the wrong thing that you want to do if you want to take an, a sagebrush rebellion, you think it's a militant rebellion, if you want to deny it further oxygen, you are doing exactly the wrong thing. You are actually feeding the, feeding the fire. Back in 1970, they wanted Muhammad Ali either hung or in jail, because he said, uh, I have no problem with yellow people, just white people. Jane Fonda, they wanted hung as a traitor as Hanoi Jane. I remember it very well, and I was strongly criticized and vilified when I had both of them on the AM show for an hour to talk live. Well, about John, the you know, you, you've had John Potash on here a number of times. You look at what happened to the Black Panther movement. Yes, exactly. The Black exactly. Panther movement so, is a perfect corollary of this. What was done to the Black Panther movement through COINTELPRO is yes. a perfect example of what of exactly the wrong way to deal with a protest movement. And because you had, you had African-Americans who had weapons, legally had weapons, mm -hmm. they were cracked, they, they, they cracked the whip. And, and I say that intentionally because that was the intent of what they were doing. It was a, it was a Jim Crow maneuver. And look at what it spawned. It spawned, it spawned multi-generational distrust of African-Americans for institutions in the United States. Understandable. He, as, as, as a diehard Marine and somebody who did have security clearance, and in thinking about the continuance of government and the system in America, do you think the owners of this country or the government or the deep state, do you think that they have plans that not even President Trump is aware of? Because I know that Harry Truman did not know there was an A-bomb for a year. I, uh, I, I see right now we're watching it happen, and I'm investigating. And by the way, I'm factualizing what I'm about to say. Uh, the deep state and this system that's running in parallel, um, I believe that there is an intelligence operation involved in a coup against the duly elected president of the United States. We see it. They've warned of it. It exists. That, that he has oppositional forces right now that exist within the intelligence agencies, this deep state, we have to call them. It includes a portion of the FBI. We'll call them the black side of the FBI and a portion of even the CIA that he's not only not aware of, but they are working to overthrow our government. And I've been able to establish factually by chasing the money trail uh, where some of these entities are that are even involved in this Kavanaugh debacle right now. So the answer is unequivocally yes, and it's factually correct. In October of 1963, Arthur Crock had a front page editorial in which he said, if there is ever an attempt at an overthrow of the United States government, 
it will be at the hands of the Central Intelligence Agency. Mm. There, there was an assassination of John Kennedy. You never heard from Arthur Kroc again. A few days later, Harrison, Harrison Salisbury had a front page article saying he was going to conduct his own investigation into the Kennedy assassination, and they sent him and his typewriter to Vietnam. So we only have two minutes left, so I want to give each one of you about 30 or 40 seconds to say, do you see something positive happening to America, or do you see it getting worse? Pete, we'll start with you. I, I say that this midterm election uh, uh, is the most important election of our lifetime, that positive things can come if we American families, and it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, they're all both they're politically working towards the same thing, that if American families would do their research, wake up and figure out what's going on, that yes, we can vote our conscience at the voting booth. Just everybody needs to get involved in this process. However it works out, if everybody says we're going to vote socialist and we become socialists. At least we, the people, have decided that. I have optimism and faith in the American people. I say, yes, we can do something, but we need to act quickly. Well, I hate to quote Mark Twain again, but he said, if voting made a difference, they wouldn't let us do it. Mm -hmm. So now <laughs> I have faith in the people because this country is filled with geniuses. Joe, your comments. Well, you know, I don't prognosticate and I don't advocate for any political uh, point of view in this. Um, I do think the one thing about Brett Kavanaugh that stands out to me is that he is a child of the Beltway. He's, his father was a lobbyist. He comes from Georgetown Prep. He comes from Yale University. He comes from the Federalist Society. The Federalist Society is funded by the Koch brothers, and the Koch brothers are getting their wish list met every single day. And I think, yeah. to me, one of, the, the, one of the saddest things about Trump's presidency is that he is He's ginned everybody up to fight the deep state, but in many ways, the primary beneficiaries of the Trump presidency have been Wall Street, big oil, big defense, Saudi Arabia. Yeah. When I look at that, to me, that's the deep state. Yes, sir. I agree. Well, I want, I want to thank you both very much, Pete. Thank you. Uh, and af after November, I would be absolutely thrilled if you would come back and do this show again and spend another hour with me. I loved the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Pete. Uh, Jared, thank you. I'll see Thanks. you in two weeks. Mr. So tell as, Ed Murray, touch. Huh? <laughs> as Ed Murray used to say, good night and good luck. See you in two weeks. The dark days are done and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere. Sunny one so true I love